The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. Record-breaking magician Martin Rees tells us about the new mentoring scheme for youngsters from Guinness World Records. Hannah Dow has details on how we can all stay safe online and a digital drop-in session being run at the library next week. And we'll be finding out how jelly and ice cream and pass the parcel is making a comeback as parents find ways to cut the costs associated with kids' birthdays. Jago Bailey will be talking to Andrew Coleman from Surfers Against Sewage about the organisation's fight to clean up our seas and waterways. And Paul Tolmy will be finding out about a journaling group being run at Checker Mead and the sport of pickleball. All coming up in this edition. Over half of us have given up on our childhood dreams. That's according to new research from Guinness World Records. But all's not lost, as the organisation has now launched its first ever mentor scheme for young people to help them achieve their lifetime goals. One of those taking part in the scheme is Martin Rees. He's the first person for over 10 years to achieve the record for performing 20 magic tricks underwater, surpassing the previous record by an impressive seven tricks. Even more striking when you consider Martin has a fear of being underwater, having nearly drowned as a youngster. And I'm delighted that he can join me now to inspire us all further. Martin, welcome to the show. Now, before we talk about your own achievement, can you start by telling us a bit more about the mentorship scheme and why it's been established? Yeah, sure. Hi, Tim. Thank you for having me. And uh, very much, I'm so excited to be part of this uh, scheme because the Guinness World Records Mentor Scheme uh, has been designed just to get kids inspired to pursue their dreams uh, because uh, they did a bit of market research beforehand. And it was a surprising statistic that 80% of people growing up didn't really have a mentor figure in their life or someone who really pushed them to pursue their dreams growing up. And uh, over, uh, I think it's around 60% of uh, grown-ups feel that they just didn't really fulfill their childhood dreams or haven't really got any major plans to do so. Uh, so this is very much a scheme to uh, just inspire kids and uh, to meet people like myself who've push themselves and push themselves out of their comfort zones with things uh, to uh, yeah, uh, hopefully inspire them to do likewise. Fantastic. And why did you personally want to get involved? Um, so growing up, I, I was very fortunate. I had some incredible mentors uh, growing up and I still do. Uh, with each, I've got six Guinness World Record titles now uh, that I hold. And with each one, uh, for instance, in addition to the uh, most magic underwater, I did the most magic on a skydive. Uh, I did 11 magic tricks while skydiving um, in 2016. And uh, I'd never skydived before that. So I had to seek mentors who were skydivers to just learn from them really and help uh, to get an understanding for how the physical of it works because uh, doing magic or card tricks at 120 miles an hour is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> I can imagine. What motivated you to pursue these particular records in the first place? So in 2015, I started working with a children's charity called Spread a Smile, who provide entertainment as therapy for kids who are undergoing treatment in hospital. And meeting these incredible children just was a truly life-changing uh, uh, moment for me because uh, it made me realise that, you know, considering the strength and courage that they have to face daily in hospital with no choice, uh, there's no reason why I shouldn't just push myself and push myself out of my comfort zone and go and do some crazy stuff. And uh, I did it to raise money for the charity and the pros in the process so uh it, it essentially kind of the guinness world records have given me just a fun way to get out there and experience new uh things and uh, also i've grown so much as a person throughout each record and uh 
uh, yeah, and so now I'm at the stage where with the experience that I've gained, I can now uh, start sharing that with others who want to also get out there and pursue their dreams and do crazy stuff. That's great. Did you yourself ever experience any moments of doubt or a lack of confidence during your training for these records? Very much so. Funny enough, when I did the water record, uh, because the actual time frame from coming up with the actual period when we did it, because uh, we did it during the second lockdown at Pinewood Film Studios. So we had quite a quick turnaround to try and get it sorted. And there were mornings where I woke up and I just was, I just like, that's it. I'm not doing it anymore. Forget it. This is a rubbish idea. Why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself under all this pressure? And uh, because tricks just weren't working in water. And uh, yeah, I, I really had to kind of just push through it really. And this is the good thing about having a mentor because uh, the person who was mentoring me through the water record, every time I started having a little tantrum, he would uh, turn around and go, look, just get up get on with it and you'll be absolutely fine you're going to do this and I did and uh, I'm so glad that I had that kind of that person there to, to keep pushing me forward and keep pushing me through the challenging times because it's uh it does make a big difference what impacts it had on your life both personally and professionally doing some of these records so in uh, a lot of cases the records um have taken a couple of years from the point of coming up with the idea of doing it to actually executing it the water record for instance as an overall project took three years and most of that was overcoming the fear of being in water um, and just getting comfortable and being able to focus without that panic setting in um, and uh, that's the thing I've just grown so much as a person as a result I've met so many incredible people along the journey and I've, it's funny with for me whenever I actually achieve the Guinness World Record don't get me wrong it is an incredible experience and an incredible feeling but then usually for the first week or two after the record after I've achieved the record I feel really blue it's, I, I call it the post-show blues because uh, uh, essentially the thing that I love the most is the planning and the preparation and the anticipation and the excitement and the lead up to the actual attempt itself because uh, that's where I've gone through the most growth and the most development uh, uh, on a personal level. Now obviously we've been talking about the mentorship scheme for young people today what advice though would you give to others who've perhaps given up on their childhood dreams and are looking now to reignite their ambitions? Well, as they say, Tim, uh, you can always teach an old dog new tricks and it very much can happen. And very much so. There's no there's, there, there's no such thing as giving up on your dream because every day you have the opportunity to start pursuing that dream. I think the biggest thing is people struggle. And this is the one thing that came out of the market research is that people struggle with where to start and where to begin. And if they've got this big grand idea, it's, it's what the baby steps are that you need to take in order to get the ball rolling to get there. Because I think that's the biggest thing is to accept the fact that things aren't going to happen overnight and things aren't going to happen instantaneously, especially the things that matter. They take time and they do. Uh, they, you do need that time to develop things uh, and uh, evolve them and grow them. So uh, I would say, really, if anyone's kind of still wanting to do something, but has given up on the idea or given up on the hope of it ever happening, just all I can suggest is just start. Just make a start. Make Start reaching out to people. Uh, I'm working on my next project at the moment, uh, which is actually doing magic in space. And as part of that, I'm going to try and attempt to break the current Guinness World Record for the highest suspended escape from a street jacket. So the current altitude is 7,200 feet. Uh, I want to go up to 10,000 feet, escape from the street jacket, then put a parachute on and then skydive down uh, back down to the ground. So, uh, but in that respect, I've got to do a lot of training and a lot of networking and reaching out to a lot of people. And it may not even happen because of the health and safety aspect of it. But just each day, I'm just pushing towards it. And as long as I'm doing that, 
eventually it, it will come to fruition. Brilliant. Well, I wish you all the success for that. Um, if someone would like to find out more about the Guinness World Records mentorship scheme, where can they go? They can go onto the Guinness World Records website and just search for the mentor scheme on there. Fantastic. Martin, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your inspiring story. Thank you so much for having me on, Tim. If you'd like to find out more about the Guinness World Records mentorship scheme, visit guinnessworldrecords.com and search for mentor. That's guinnessworldrecords.com and search for mentor. We'll post a direct link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. The scheme is open for applications until the 18th of June from those aged 11 to 18. How savvy are you when it comes to online scams and safety? Well, West Sussex County Council's digital safety team will be at East Grinstead Library on Wednesday to help us all avoid falling foul of fraudsters. To tell us more, I'm joined by Hannah Dow from the Council. Hannah, welcome to the show. Can you start by telling us what the digital drop-in session is all about? Thank you very much for having me, Tim, and hello to everyone listening as well. So we're very excited. We're going to be hitting up East Grinstead Library. That's going to be the first of four of our libraries that we're going to be visiting over the next couple of months. Um, the event is all about helping individuals to prevent them from becoming victims of fraud and blackmail. Uh, these are a series of new in-person events. We do have some webinars available as well, but we really encourage everyone to come down and actually visit us as well. And we really really just want to raise awareness about staying safe online, providing individuals with the knowledge on how to spot scams, what to do if they or their family become a victim of online fraud as well. And what's the format for the session? What happens on the day? So we're going to be talking through some of the most um, current scams that we're seeing a rise of in West Sussex. And we're going to be doing a proper look through at all the different resources that we have, the resources that are available locally as well in terms of getting advice, knowing where to report and getting that confidence um, level up in actually being able to do that yourselves as well. We know how difficult it can be to spot scams as, you know, technology is constantly changing, evolving, and it can just become harder and harder to spot. So that is kind of the, the premise and the format. We're going to be going through all of the different scams that are currently on our radar, how to actually navigate them, where to find that support and feeling confident in doing so. Now, scammers seem to be getting more sophisticated in the way they try and reel us in. What are some of the signs that something could be a scam? Well, the most important thing is that scammers will try and make you feel like there's a sense of urgency, whether that's to click a link, to answer your phone, to part with your money. And the thing that we always recommend is pause, take a breath, do not click on any links until you've double checked who has sent that link, especially being online. Check for that, that spelling, that grammar, really make sure you know exactly who it is who's sending you these things. And if you're at all you know, unsure about whether it's an email, text, WhatsApp, direct message, all of these wonderful things that we use every day, if you're ever unsure, contact that individual or the organization or the bank that this person's claiming to be directly call them directly visit them in person um, and that applies to scams again on the phone banks will never ever ask for your card details over the phone to withdraw or transfer money or anything like that so just really double check that mm, does this sound correct does this sound right would they actually ask me for my pin number or should i actually click this link because there's some grammar mistakes here and 
we know that it's always getting more sophisticated as time goes on but it's those really simple things that can be very easily overlooked especially if they're trying to make you feel like it's a very urgent matter which is why we always encourage people to just stop breathe a minute and just think through those um, couple of processes what are some of the common scams and online fraud that you're seeing that people should be aware of oh well there's quite a few different ones bouncing around i mean in terms of west sussex itself i mean at the moment you know west sussex has had the highest amount lost in our area we've had 3.58 million pounds lost to fraud um over the past year and the most common frauds from that is things from courier fraud, which is where fraudsters will try and contact victims by telephone, online, claiming to be perhaps a police officer or a bank official, trying to dupe people into handing over their money or their valuables. Um, dating and romance fraud as well, that's really becoming very, very prevalent across West Sussex. And it's, it's, it's so disappointing because they're targeting vulnerable people who are usually on Facebook groups, specifically for those who are perhaps um, wanting to discuss mental health, bereavement, just and even things like aging, you know, these people are looking for vulnerable people on there, claiming that they want to make friends, but actually it's for much more nefarious um, means. And kind of on the more extreme end of that scale as well, the number one current scam across West Sussex is something called sextortion, um, and that's the criminal act of obtaining sexual images and videos from victims in order to blackmail them for you know for further sex but also for money as well it's a it's a really horrible horrible crime so sextortion courier fraud and dating fraud are the most common ones we're seeing at the moment in west sussex so if somebody receives one of these messages or they're partway through a conversation online and something doesn't quite feel right and they're worried that perhaps they are being scammed what should they do and where can they go for help so First thing, if they're even if they're mid conversation, immediately just stop it, completely stop it. Try and gather any kind of evidence as well. That's really important to make sure that you have that evidence of actually this isn't quite right. So jotting down that telephone number or taking screenshots of your messages online. Um, we have a really great website on um, on staying safe online that can then direct you to directly to where to report to those. So action fraud, we've got Operation Signature that's running across West Sussex, which is actually where we get a lot of our information from, from them as well. Um, but all, all of the resources on where to actually get that support, get that advice and then report is all on our website. So someone would just have to go to www.westsussex.gov.uk and in the search bar, you just type in staying safe online and from there, you'll be able to report any frauds, potential frauds that you just, even if you're unsure, it's always better to get that support out there. And if the worst happens and somebody has been scammed or defrauded, what are the first steps for them? So what we would recommend is that they immediately contact their bank directly, um, whether that's over the phone or ideally in person as well, especially if that person's perhaps feeling a bit, um, a bit worried that, you know, Am I actually going to be calling the right number? Just go visit your bank as soon as possible, giving them all of that information about what's just happened. Um, you know, it's, it's a very scary thing and it can sometimes feel perhaps a bit embarrassing, especially, it, you know, we all like to think that we wouldn't be scammed. But, you know, from the statistics we've got, it is so, so easy to fall into that. And so just immediately go contact your bank. Make sure that if you think that any passwords perhaps have been compromised because of that, if you've given out, you know, confidential details regarding PIN numbers or passwords, change them immediately. 
don't don't think about anything else make sure you change those passwords you contact your bank and that organization directly and then they'll be able to process it from there and they are very very good at doing so fantastic some great advice there now remind us about the session on wednesday in east grinstead what's happening and when we're going to be heading down to East Grinstead Library on Wednesday the 14th of June. We are going to have an in-person session from 10am and it will run for an hour and we have drop-in sessions afterwards as well. So do come down and meet um, meet us. I will be there, my brilliant um, colleague Claudia will be there and I believe some of our digital access librarian friends are going to be there as well to help out as well which will be absolutely brilliant. So we're going to be giving out some leaflets and some on-the-spot advice as well. So I would really recommend everyone come down to the actual in-person session where we'll go through everything a lot more in depth as well um, but likewise obviously do come and see us afterwards where we can help you and advise where to go and things like that we've got lots of leaflets and we've got lots of energy as well to be talking about scams all day brilliant do you need to make an appointment or can you simply turn up they can simply turn up so with the webinars that we're running, we do have it on Eventbrite, so you can find that through our Staying Safe Online website, which I mentioned before. But in terms of the drop-in, please do just come along um, all that morning for the, for the session and also for the drop-in afterwards. No need to book an appointment at all. That's great. Hannah, thanks so much for your time today, and I hope the session goes well on Wednesday. Thank you very much for having me, Tim, and I'm sure it'll be brilliant, so come on down. The digital drop-in session will be taking place this Wednesday from 10am until 3pm at the library in East Grinstead. There will be tips on spotting scams and reporting fraud and the team will be available to support people with any digital inquiries. For more details on online safety in general, visit westsussex.gov.uk and search for Staying Safe Online. That's westsussex.gov.uk and then search for Staying Safe Online. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Party classics like jelly and ice cream and pass the parcel are making a comeback. That's according to new research from TK Maxx. The retailer's been looking at how parents are saving money on gifts for their kids' friends and hosting parties for their own kids. Fortunately, Alex Steadman from thefrugality.com and toyologist Peter Jenkinson have teamed up to give us some tips, and they're with me now. Alex, Peter, welcome to the show. Now, Alex, if I can start with you, what sort of ways are we seeing parents adapting to the increasing costs of children's birthday parties? Well, I think um, it's quite an interesting discussion, actually, and one I've been seeing more and more of. Um, TK Maxx have been doing some research and found that 33% of people say they're spending less on gifts for children's birthdays. And I think there's a, you know, general, obviously, the cost of living, general squeeze on everything. So people are looking at kind of avenues where money can be cut down. And I think it's a really easy way to cut down on money without actually taking any of the joy out of birthday parties. So we'll be seeing a lot more kind of going back to basics. So making your own snacks, maybe doing kind of a bit more of your own entertainment, you know, musical statues, maybe playing in the garden or the local park now that the weather's getting better um, but also in terms of gifting you know maybe you can set a spending limit with friends on what you spend on the gift or maybe there's a toy swap and kids could bring you know pre-loved items and for the gift instead and I think it's about really getting creative and ideas and hopefully that will help you save money. Indeed now how big of a shift in behavior have we seen in recent years? 
Well, it says that 82% now kind of hosting parties at home compared to five years ago. And 35% of people are also spending less on gifts for their own children as well. So it's actually, a, you know, a real kind of shift in the last five years. I know that I have been thinking definitely about my child's parties as well. Like we've been doing secondhand books for party bags. I've been making my own snacks. I did do sausage rolls at my um, kids' birthdays and, you know, cheese sandwiches and they went down a treat. Sounds delicious. Now, you've been looking into some creative ways in which parents can save money when hosting their kids' party, haven't you? You know, I think things like, you know, homemade items, you know, you can maybe you can make a cake or, you know, bring that and maybe that can be instead of the gift. And that's something that you can join in with, you know, your child as well and, you know, make it a bit more of an activity and empower them and get them involved. Because often it's the parents buying the present and the child doesn't know what it is. And actually, if you make them part of it part of the experience i think it makes a huge difference i mean i'm also one for always saving ribbons reusing gift bags you know save any colored tissue that comes with them you know online purchases and rewrap your presents and um, there's also things like buying in bulk so i always think you can buy toy bundles secondhand or you know beauty sets from tk maxx i like to buy bath bombs in bulk and then kind of distribute them along you know different birthday bags throughout the year. Now Peter as a toyologist when it comes to gifts how can parents keep costs down or be a bit more creative? Well I think on one side is um, ask the parents if the kids got any particular toy interests for example so if they're into die cast cars you could buy them a a small piece of track because that smaller gift um, would uh, would weigh less on your wallet um, and have a a direct impact on something that the kid actually wants rather than the, the want to go and get the biggest box because that's the best gift. That is definitely not the case. If you look down the, the TK Maxx well-curated toy aisles, which I've been spending for a, yeah, a good few hours, there's the, you're not overwhelmed by the choice, but there are some really strong brands in there that are really quite good value. And they come together and they're, they're, they're brands that the kids will recognise because um, that is important for them. So they've got the, you know, they've got the Danish bricks, the Barbie dolls from Mattel. Uh, you've got the Hot Wheels cars and many more besides. Um, I'm kind of a big fan, as just as Alex was talking now, is um, if you've got a birthday party, like through between now and the end of the summer, fingers crossed for the weather, is um, an, an outdoor toy party it might be something really cool to do. So to get your friends to each bring a, an item of toy, like a badminton set or a swing ball um, and put, put those um, put those all together but um uh bring along a one of my one of my favorite gifts uh this year is uh, somebody bought me um a bubble making machine <laughs> i just switch on and put it in the garden and it's one of the most <laughs> relaxing things that i have um but none of these things have to cost um the the earth at all um and you'll you can also talk to other parents about clubbing together perhaps um, and getting um, and getting a, a slightly bigger toy if you so wish, uh, but you don't. Um, you absolutely don't need to go over the top. I guess this is all easier said than done. Would you say there are any challenges associated with cutting back on gift spending? No, I think there is. Um, you know, a real kind of competitive nature, especially with social media. I think that does come with its challenges of, you know, am I throwing the best party? Am I, you know, getting my prep? child the best present it's you know the real pressure from parents 
um, especially I suppose if you know my daughter just started a new school so you know a whole new set of people and peers that you have to kind of you know entertain so you know there is a worry that you know are you going to you know be known as the person with a terrible party but no you are not like all I you know when I get invited well my daughter gets invited to a party I'm just so happy that they've got somewhere to go they're going to be with their friends for the day and have a great you know they're going to have a great time no matter and I really think we need to take away that you know expectation of the biggest best party you could throw the most lavish party you know in the world and you know, they might still just like that day where they just played musical statues in a garden. The, the truth is that if you if you throw a party with cheese and pineapple sticks, they're never going to forget that. No, I think all the kids them. will remember. <laughs> As you say, it's all about memories, and I certainly remember my cheese and pineapple hedgehog. Um, how do you think parents can strike the best balance then between a budget-friendly party and creating those memories? I think the best way is just to channel your inner child and really think about the experience rather than what they take away as a physical, you know, party bag. You know, think about the games that they're like playing, you know, maybe it's, you know, we've done parties where my partner's been the entertainer and he's just done, you know, games, um, you know, again, musical statues, obstacle courses, and everyone had such a wonderful time. And I think that's the thing, think about the experience and memories that you're creating and not worrying about, you know, presence and all of those things that are, are frankly an aside do you think it gets tougher though as children get older i personally would say not so 12 13 not really so much having a party rather than let's all come together and i'll just go shopping with my friends i don't actually want any parental um activity there because you're embarrassing now dad uh, and I'm sure that's replicated across the country. So I don't think as they get older, I think they get slightly easier to buy for. But I still try and be really creative with my teenager um, by giving her something that I think she might like and use. Um, it might not so much be a toy now, but I did buy some beautiful Lego bouquet of flowers. And she's been building that for days and days and days. But I think it, uh, it becomes much easier when it gets slightly older. Well, my eldest daughter is coming out the other end at, at 21 and she's now started to ask for um, certain titles of board games. So it's all really circular, as we were saying before. You know, when I was a kid, cheese and pineapple, sausage rolls and jelly and custard were the thing. And then we went through a period of, you know, digital babysitters and iPads were all the rage and consoles. And now we're seeing a real return to nostalgia, um, partly caused by the pandemic and having to kind of make do with what we had at home and recycling what we already had um, and kids have really got into it because if you invest a little bit of time as an example teaching a kid how to play um, a board game you'd be surprised how much they get into it and their friends love playing it because they don't really get that much of a chance fantastic so we've covered quite a lot there where can people go if they want a reminder of some of your top tips um, you can go on to tk max site or my blog thefrugality.com Fantastic. Alex, Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. For a reminder of Alex's tips, visit thefrugality.com. That's thefrugality.com. Or you can find gift inspiration at tkmax.com. That's tkmax.com. We'll post links on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On his mid-morning show on Tuesday, Paul Tolmy spoke to Mel Parks from Honeyleaf Writing about a monthly journaling group she runs at Checkermead Theatre. 
It's a new group. I've been running creative writing workshops for almost um, 10 years now. Um, but I thought it would be a good idea to have a group which um, focuses on just the process of writing and the benefits for everyone um, without the worry about craft and whether writing is good enough or not good enough and what you're going to do with it. It's just basically about getting the words on the page. Yeah, so finding a way to articulate what you want to say on out, come out the pen. Exactly, yes, yeah. Okay, brilliant. So uh, tell us how the um, group came about. So I was running workshops at the bookshop and in Forest Row um, before the pandemic, and then during the pandemic I couldn't do that in the same way. So, so basically I had time for a rethink on everything, and instead of splitting up my workshops into story writing or poetry writing, um, I realised that what I'd been doing for the past 20 years was keeping a journal, and I th and it's been such a help for me over those years in um, accessing my intuition and kind of guiding me through life that I wanted to share that with other people. And the benefits of doing it in a group is that you can, you know, people talk to each other and share stories and you get a bond with people in the group that you might not get otherwise, which also contributes to well-being. And you can pick up ideas from other people as well, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the reason people really love coming to creative writing workshops and the journaling group is that you get to hear perspectives from different people, you get to hear their stories, and listening is just about as important as writing as well. Definitely. So you mentioned um, you mentioned the pandemic, of course, which was a very difficult uh, difficult period for everyone. Um, a, a lot of people just started writing through it. How important would you say it is for you know health and well-being? Because it's quite therapeutic sometimes writing your th yeah. you know, writing your thoughts down. Yeah, that's right. Um, so there, there's, there, I mean, there's been lots of studies over the years um, about how important writing is for well-being. But in particular, there's a man called James Pennebaker in America who, in the 80s and 90s, did research showing that the benefits of expressive writing um, improved m not only mental health but physical health as well and um, when I, I think when I first realized that I thought that was amazing because it stopped me worrying about you know whether something's good enough for publication or anything like that it's just good for overall health um, yeah, he, he said that writing down memories of traumatic events plus the feelings surrounding them in a controlled way is good for our health. So, you know, that it's really important that it's done with the support of a therapist if needed and um, in kind of short 15-minute bursts each day so it doesn't bring up lots of, you know, unwanted or feelings that you can't um, deal with. No, so, of course, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so so in my workshops, you know, I'm not a trained therapist, so I do even though they're aimed at well being and people do find them therapeutic, um, I don't delve into emotions or anything like that. I ask people if someone's feeling overly emotional to kind of write about it at another time and just consider that they're in a workshop setting. So you know, often the therapeutic part of it is that we laugh a lot, we have a lot of fun, we try new things, and, and um, you know, people learn things and they bond with each other as well. Nothing wrong with a good laugh, I say. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, Mel, so your um, journaling group sessions at the Chetty Mead Theatre are on Tuesday evenings, is that right? 
That's right, yeah. yeah. Tuesday so, evenings, um, they're monthly. Yeah. Um, but I also do a Thursday morning session, um, which is slightly different. As I said before, it, it does have an element of craft in it, while the emphasis is always on the process and just, you know, not doing things wrong. The people that come do enjoy kind of learning new techniques and um, the craft element of writing. Um, and then in the autumn, I'm also starting um, mini memoir courses. So these will be three-week courses where I will pick a specific technique and, and um, teach that, basically. Yeah. All right, brilliant. So um, tell us, Mel, what happens in a typical session? So people like to bring their own notebooks, actually. Yeah, and it's course. really nice to when people have like their their own special notebook for my workshops because they can look back on the exercises they've done and you know to see see what's changed and keep all their ideas together as well so people usually have that but yeah any old piece of paper is fine and pens or pencils some people just like to write with pencils and that's that's completely fine um, and so I lead the writing exercises and then we write together and share what we've written. No one ever has to share if they don't want to for any reason at all, although generally it's encouraged, but you can opt out at any time. Um, it's based on a technique called free writing, which is what you, you write whatever's in your mind without worrying about spelling or grammar or if it makes sense. There's no way to do it wrong. Trying new things and experimenting is encouraged. Um, and the exercises might just be sentence starters. So I'll just say, say a sen you know, the beginning of a sentence and then people will continue that in their own words. Or I'll bring an object in or a picture or we'll play a game like consequences where we pass pieces of paper around the room. And I, I guide you through the process step by step. So if someone's never written before, we'll just start with writing down a few words and saying them out loud and then, and then continue to learning difficult challenging techniques such as forms of poetry and um you know how to structure a story and that kind of thing as well and um, that's for the Thursday morning group the journaling group is just about the process all right brilliant well um how can people find out if people have said all oh, that sounds like my that sounds right up my street uh, people can go to your website can't they and sign up for it yeah that's right my website is www.honeyleafwriting.com um, the next journaling group is on the 20th of June and also I have a newsletter on Substack called Arwen A-W-E-N um, and that's arwen.substack.com um, so that in that newsletter I write more about my own writing process um, I share a little pieces of works in progress and I also share writing prompts each week and you know give some of the background behind the writing workshops and why i do what i do mel parks from honeyleaf writing talking to paul tolmy earlier this week and as a reminder if you'd like to find out more about the journaling group that mel runs visit honeyleafwriting.com that's honeyleafwriting.com you can also access the blog that mel mentioned from the site We'll post a link on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. On the second episode of his environment show this week, Jago Bailey spoke to Andrew Coleman from the Brighton and Hove branch of Surfers Against Sewage. In addition to working with the organisation, Andrew spent time as a town planner and is an expert in both coastal and climate change.
if you go right back to the roots of town planning in Britain, it was all about public health in the first place, about improving housing conditions in particular. So, for example, here in Brighton, a lot of the slums where the famous novel Brighton Rock are set have been, you know, were knocked down and replaced by uh, municipal housing under housing acts. And so kind of the roots of town planning are in public health. But I found myself in the 1990s getting increasingly interested in kind of environmental issues generally. That's when I first started doing campaigning for surfers against sewage because I found myself surfing in raw sewage quite a lot of the time in the winter. And I had a kind of general interest in wider issues. And I did a, a master's whilst working for the London Borough of Croydon at the University of Brighton in environmental assessment. And I be, kind of became a specialist in the environmental sides of town planning. So that included, in Croydon, included things like the green belt, protecting the green belt and important wildlife habitats, but also air pollution and land pollution and water pollution. And so it's a kind of a it's a kind of a niche subject within town planning. So that's how it all started, really. So you're a regional rep for Surfers Against Sewage. Could you just tell us a bit about how you came across Surfers Against Sewage? And, and I, I heard you sort of say that you you were surfing in sewage, but was there anything else that drove you to join the organisation? Well, no, it was uh, essentially that. So back in the 1980s, this was in Brighton. Whenever it rains heavily, then you would get raw sewage coming out of short sea outfalls all along the seafront, along Brighton and Hove. Uh, and the reason for that was that the Victorians built these short sea outfalls to stop people's houses becoming flooded with sewage. Particularly in Hove, there's a lot of low-lying basement properties. Uh, if, the, if the drains filled up and the sewers filled up, then the only way out was for them to come open to people's houses. So they had these kind of like release valves and these short sea outfalls. But what that meant was that there was loads of sewage going into the sea not just in the winter, but whenever it rained particularly heavily. So it was that. And I also met up with some other groups, Friends of the Earth, members of Greenpeace, people like that, who were also getting concerned about sea pollution. When you think about it, the whole reason that Brighton and Hove has grown from a tiny fishing village is because of, of the sea. You know, that's why people first started coming down here in the 18th century to take the waters, you know, to do their sea bathing. In some cases, actually drink the sea water as well that it was supposed to be a health cure. So, you know, that and then um, the greatest growth as a result is all down to the sea. And so there are a few kind of individuals and some of the local reps of these groups who were doing this, doing this campaigning. And, and then Surfers Against Sewage was formed in Cornwall and I read about it in a surfing magazine and decided I, I needed to get involved, really. What, why do you think it's grown to become such a massive organisation, you know, beyond Cornwall? It's, it's a sort of a UK-wide organisation yeah. now. Well, originally, you know, it was just surfers in North Cornwall around Forth Tower and Perrinforth, that area, St. Agnes, campaigning about sewage. You know, it was a single issue group and their advantage right from the very beginning has been being quite clever in terms of their kind of the imagery that they use. So, you know, the fact that they were wearing wetsuits, turning up outside Parliament, carrying surfboards, wearing a gas mask. Then a bit later on, you know, they was they've got uh, had an eight foot inflatable poo and a big inflatable kind of um, chemical drum, that kind of thing. They were very strong on that public imagery and and on those on the demonstrations. And, and you could always guarantee that the press were going to turn up basically to any kind of surface against sewage demo. You know, that's why they got a lot of publicity in the first place. And then after a lot of campaigning and the implementation of European laws. You know, we all thought that a lot of that sewage pollution problem had gone away. You know, there were still other marine pollution issues that we were concerned about. And then really the big campaign that we, we started up 
or um, really took to a different level was the issue about marine pollution of, of plastics. So uh, we've, you know, for years and years, we've been running beach cleans and the amount of rubbish that we were picking up that was around here, mainly coming from the land, you know, so stuff from businesses on the land. But in, a, in at certain times of the year in other places, obviously a lot was getting washed up from the sea. So fishing lines and nets and whatnot and things like that. So that's another thing that we started doing a lot of campaigning about. And that's, uh, I would say that that's, you know, that got a lot of public attention, you know, to the, to the stage now where we run the biggest beach cleans in terms of the number of people turning up and the amount of beaches and, and rivers and mountains covered. We do a thing called the Million Miles Clean every year. You know, they're the biggest in the UK now. And then about probably about two, two years ago, two, three years ago, I'd say there was the whole issue of sewage pollution reared its ugly head again. And it was around lockdown, I'd say, probably the first lockdown when we had absolutely fantastic weather. We were you know, stuck at home, being encouraged to take an hour's exercise every day. And an awful lot of people took up open water swimming and stand up paddleboarding. You know, and that's when, uh, coupled with the water company is releasing more information about when they were using outfalls. That's when it really all kicked off again over the sewage pollution. And there was a, we had been campaigning about it, kind of not in the background, but we weren't getting that much coverage in those days. Uh, but then it all really ramped up after 2020. The more people seeing it with their own eyes, more people getting sick. And then people like Fergal Sharkey obviously getting involved. That was how it all kind of came up again in the public consciousness. To focus a bit more on, on sewage pollution, so, so Surface Against Sewage wants to end sewage discharge into bathing waters by 2030. Yeah, that's just a UK goal. And the organisation has described the UK sewage system as woefully inadequate. Could you explain why that's the case? We're basically operating with the Victorian pipes under the ground in a lot of places, particularly in you know older towns and cities like Brighton and Hove. And in terms of the wastewater treatment plants, They've, they were upgraded following European legislation in the early 2000s, but the water companies haven't been investing in them or enlarging them since then. And, and then also you've got the issue of climate change as well, which means we're getting, a, we're getting more intense rainfall. Put all those things together and we're ending up with a lot more uses of these storm outfalls than we really should be getting. Sewage pollution has been, a, it's been a, yeah, as you say, a really prominent issue in the UK media. Could you just explain a bit about the impact that this sewage discharge has, first on our environment, and then second, also on us as humans? The environment, first of all, obviously, wastewater sewage is essentially fertiliser, so it adds, adds a lot of nutrients into the waters it goes into. Now, in theory, when you're discharging straight out into the sea, that might not be such a big issue, but when you're discharging near shore or into estuaries, places like Chichester Harbour around here, you know, they're very sensitive habitats and they also may be shellfish habitats as well. So we've got real issues there with pollution of, you know, of, of organisms like shellfish and the extra nutrients that are going in is also basically killing off the, you know, the natural sea grasses and the other vegetation in there. And so you're getting a total imbalance of, of habitats in terms and there's also um, lots of microplastics as well and other chemicals which aren't stripped out by the wastewater treatment plants they're all getting into the food chain and into into marine wildlife as well in terms of humans the, the main impacts on humans from bathing in uh, polluted seawater are basically diarrhea and vomiting uh, and then you can also get ear infections 
eye infections, uh, and there are potentially other kind of viral complaints as well, which people get, which can um, basically knock you out for a, a week or so. There are um, suggestions that some more serious viruses as well don't die in, in wastewater. So, you know, things like polio, for example, was being detected in wastewater treatment plants in London last year. And the wastewater treatment plants don't strip out all of the, the viruses and bacteria that can make people ill. That's the, the basic problem as far as human health is concerned. Have you experienced any of these illnesses yourself as a surfer? Funny enough, when well, it's not funny, sad in a way. One of the things about people who do immerse themselves for a long time in wastewater, polluted wastewater, is that you do build up immunity for certain things. But having said that, yeah, certainly in the 1980s and 90s, you know, after surfing in wastewater, I would, you know, get vomiting, diarrhea, those kinds of things. And um, more recently, I get ear infections as well. Um, when I get polluted water trapped in my ears, you know, I have, I've had been on a couple of antibiotic courses because I've had ear infections after going in the sea. Even, you know, wearing earplugs, you can't stop all of the water getting in there. So that's the way that I experience it mainly these days is ear infections. I've read that Surface Against Sewage actually has its own app to address this problem. Could you explain a little bit about that app? The only, and it's certainly the best, app for warning you of, of discharges of, of sewage into local bathing waters around the coast. And there are a couple of inland locations as well. It's called the Safer Season River Service. And essentially, you can download it from Google Play or the App Store. And then you can choose which uh, locations you're particularly interested in, and you will get automatic alerts when there has been the, a discharge from one of the local storm outfalls. Yes, yeah, so the Safer Season River Service, you can also, if you experience, if you see sewage being discharged, you can report an incident through it, and you can also email your MP and also submit a, a sickness report if you, if you actually get sick. So you can do lots of things through the app, which is, um, is really useful. Surface Against Sewage is in the process of upgrading it at the moment, uh, we're trying to get more inland sites on there as well. So that's going to be quite important in terms of getting more inland bathing waters designated, because at the moment there's literally just a handful of inland bathing waters and will hopefully in the long run improve sewage treatment in inland areas a lot more. Besides, you know, having the app, what other sort of actions are Surface Against Sewage taking to try and address the sewage pollution issue? At the moment, our big campaign is, is, it, is the Dirty Money petition. We're asking people to, to sign the online petition. We're aiming for 200,000 signatures, and we're doing really well. We've got over 150,000, so I'd like all your listeners to go online or search for the SAS Dirty Money petition. And essentially, we're asking for four things through that. We're asking for water company bosses and shareholders for their bonuses and their dividends to be capped and linked to compliance with environmental targets. We're asking for proper enforcement. We're asking for uh, enforcement of environmental regulations, that is, because environment agency, other uh, environmental regulators in the rest of the UK have been up an awful lot over the last decade or so, and they aren't doing their enforcement as effectively as they should be. We're asking for more information about the where the money is going, because most of the water companies, well, all of them in England, are owned by the private sector. And, you know, in some cases, like the one Southern Water, you know, they are owned essentially by 
uh, an Australian bank and a lot of the money is going offshore. So, you know, we would like to know where all of that money is going. And so those are the things that, that we're asking for, a cap on bankers' bonuses, so no shareholder payouts unless uh, water companies comply with environmental regulations and proper enforcement and uh, revealing where our money going. So we'd encourage everyone to sign the petition. We recently had a series of paddle outs across the whole country. We had about 500 people down on Brighton Beach and most of them paddling out as well to demonstrate against the water companies and that, that those demonstrations were happening all over the UK. So, you know, we're keeping up the uh, the pressure on, you know, on water companies and on government and the regulators in that way. People can also not just claim via our app and via the petition, but also we'd encourage people to write to their MPs and also um, keep up pressure on local councils because councils, you know, can be an important pressure point on water companies, you know, through the planning system and as well. So, yeah, we'd encourage people to, to take action as they, you know, as they want to. We can provide them with advice on how to do it. Andrew Coleman talking there to Jago Bailey about Surfers Against Sewage. For more information on the organisation and how you can help, visit sas.org.uk. That's sas.org.uk. That was just a short snippet. You can hear the full interview on our Listen Again service at meridianfm.com. We'll post links on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Jago will be back with his next environment show this Wednesday at 2pm. You may remember a few months ago we spoke about pickleball. Well, on Tuesday, Malcolm Tyrrell from the East Grinstead Pickleball Club joined Paul Tolmy to talk about the sport and its origins. Allegedly, the story goes that um, a US congressman, Joel Pritchard, and his mate um, Bill Bell, I think his name was, were all gathered together for a family holiday on a long um, uh, vacation, as they call them in, in, in the States in Bainbridge Island, uh, which is just outside of Washington, I believe. And they were bored, and the, their kids and grandkids were all bored, so they went out into the backyard and tried to find s- something for them to do. They found an old um, badminton court, some ping-pong bats, and uh, your older listeners may remember the, a thing called a wiffle ball, which is a sort of a, a woven um, bamboo ball. And they invented this game. And uh, that was way back in 1965. Um, and they thought it was so good that they, that they expanded it, the rules were refined, and we've ended up with the fun game that we now all call Pickleball. Where the name came from is still a bit of a mystery. Mm. Um, allegedly, their dog that they had with them on vacation was called Pickles, and Pickles kept nicking the ball. Whether that's the true story or not, or I don't know, or whether it's the fact you're looking at a combination of various racket games, uh, uh, tennis, badminton and, and table tennis, and the pickling of those three together. Whether that's where pickleball came from, mm. I don't know. But um, w- whatever, I'm delighted about it because I've discovered it and it's great fun. Yeah, so tell us how, it, how, you, how you came to be uh, involved in it because it's, quite a, it's, a, it's a fascinating sport. Well, like a lot of pickleball players that I've discovered since, um, I'm an ex-tennis player, mm. and uh, I won't bore you with the details, but I, I stopped playing tennis um, uh, because of, it, of injury. And I was over in uh, Florida on vacation and moaning about it to some friends of mine out there, the fact that I couldn't play tennis anymore. And she turned around to me and she said, well, what about pickleball? And I, like so many people, I said, well, uh, what? What on earth is that? 
And she said, well, I'm playing tomorrow morning. Why don't you come along? So I went along for the following three mornings, and I was hooked. Um, basically, all they'd done is they'd painted some extra lines onto their local tennis court, used the tennis net because it's almost identical size to a pickleball net, and away we went. And it was it's just great fun. It's very inclusive. Um, you don't need to have any special skills. It helps, obviously, if you've got uh, uh, racket skills, but um, it's a dead easy game to pick up. Um, the, the leading pro in the game, uh, a guy called Ben Johns, is quoted as saying that pickleball is, a, is an easy game to learn, an almost impossible game to master. Mm. And, I th I, and I love that statement because that's, yeah. that for me sums it all up. It's yeah. dead easy on the surface of it. And then when you dig a little bit deeper, there's some technical aspects to it, if you want to play it to that level. Mm. Um, and it's just great fun, great fun. So is it at a slightly gentler pace than tennis? Yes. It is? Yes. Uh, the, the, the ball is a plastic hollow ball, so it doesn't travel as fast as a tennis ball. It doesn't hurt mm. you when it hits you, or doesn't hurt much when it hits you. Um, uh, uh, and you're playing on a much smaller court. It's about the third of a size. Oh, it's, 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 it's a badminton court. Mm. So it's about the third of a size of a tennis court. Um, generally, you would play it as doubles, although they do have singles championships but generally we would always play it as doubles so you're only covering 10 foot because the court's only 20 foot wide um so it's it, you know it, it yes it it it's it's a lot easier on the joints it's a lot easier on uh, on on your on your arms your elbows all that kind of stuff um and it's yeah i mean we we've had people on court here at east grinstead that were aged somewhere like 12 and 80 playing on the same court at the same time and it's a competitive game, and it's just great. It, it, it's, it's a wonderful leveller. The rules are very clever in that it stops people being able to dominate at the net, um, all that kind of stuff. So everyone can get involved at whatever level and um, just, just come along and play. It's great fun. What's the, um, so what's the scoring system like? Is it the same that you score points and then... Yeah, it's exactly the same as the old badminton Right scoring system before they changed the rules ba badminton changed I, I don't know i suppose about 10 years ago uh, but it's the old system so you only score a point if you're serving and you win the point if you if you if you lose the point while you're serving it either passes to your partner for them to have a serve or it, if they've had their go already it passes to the opposition for them to have their serves um uh, i suppose the scoring is is, is probably the, the hardest bit to pick up yeah um because you're supposed to yell the score out before you actually hit hit the ball at the start of each point and it can get a bit complex trying to remember whether you're the first server or the second server but that's about as complex as the mm. game gets to be perfectly yeah. honest um and usually there's somebody else on court that, that will call the scores um so you can just get on there and just play and enjoy it um uh, we had three new people come to the first session up at acorns yesterday and by the end of the session, you wouldn't have known that it was the first time they'd ever stepped on mm. onto a pickleball court. Because you were saying before we came on the air that it's for, it's a game for all ages and all abilities Absolutely. as well. Yeah. It's very inclusive. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and all fitness levels. Because yeah. as you mentioned, it's not as yeah uh, as as challenging as tennis um, or badminton mm. um, because you, it's it, you know it the game moves. In an easy way. I suppose the only thing that you need to bear in mind is that you're going to be spending a fair amount of time bending over, p picking a ball up. Mm. But that's that's about as physical as it as as you would need to worry about. 
but certainly anybody with limited mobility could still play the game uh, and could still play the game to a reasonable level. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it, I, I think the game is really inclusive, with, which is one of the things that has really appealed to me about it, that mm. um, older, younger people not so steady on their feet, all that kind of stuff can still play pickleball and play it um, to a reasonable level. So you hold your group sessions um, locally um, through the week? Yes, we do. Yes, we, uh, we've, we are now up at Acorns, which is the East Grinstead Sports Club up at St. Hill on a Monday lunchtime. We start at half past 12 and go for a couple of hours. Um, and then uh, on a Wednesday evening, we're at the King's Sports Centre uh, again for a couple of hours from about 7.30 onwards every night, every week. Every every week, rather twice a week. All right, so people can just turn up at these. Absolutely, sessions? yes. Okay. Yes, please do. We will be delighted to have new people co- uh, come along. There's 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 no charge uh, at the moment up at Acorns. That will change in July when it will be a drop in mm. and play and pay system. Uh, but at Kings, assuming we get the numbers right, uh, that th- there is no charge. I've got all the all the paddles that you need. I've got all the balls that, that you need. Um, there are plenty of other people along that will help with the rules and, and getting you embedded into the game. So we are delighted to have new people come along. That's brilliant. Talk to, talk to us about the about the paddle because you bought one. You've bought one in for for us. As well, I say have a look at. But yeah. It's radio, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's it's interesting because it's it's not like the tennis the tennis bat racket, which I always do that. Yeah, racket, which is strings this is just solid on one side yes these are these are, are uh, more akin to a ta- table tennis yeah. bat they're sort of slightly elongated um and they don't have the pimples on mm. um but they are uh, as i say we call them paddles you can pay anything from 10 pound to 250 pounds if you really wanted to this particular one in my hand is about 100 pounds or about 80 pounds in the uk um uh, so you, you can pay whatever you like the, the the more complex paddles are thicker. Mm. The cheaper ones are just a piece of wood, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, a fashioned p- uh, piece of wood. The more complex ones have a honeycomb centre, mm. which gives you a bit more of a softer feel um, and the ability to spin the ball a little bit more, all that kind of stuff. But um, frankly, unless you're a really good player, it doesn't make that much difference. No. Um, so... Again, that's another thing that really appealed to me about pickleball is that it's so cheap to set up. Mm. Um, there are thousands, if not millions, of badminton courts in the UK. There are millions of tennis courts. All they need are, 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 are the tennis courts to have the lines put on for pickleball, and away you go. It really is as simple as that. Mm. Um, and when you could pick up a paddle for £10 and a pickleball, I don't know how much an individual ball would cost, but about £2, I suppose, and you're on and you're on a court, away you go. It really is as simple and as cheap as that. Malcolm Tyrrell from East Grinstead Pickleball Club chatting there to Paul Tolmy on his mid-morning show this week. For more information about pickleball and the club itself, search for East Grinstead Pickleball on Facebook. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on meridianfm.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.